When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. For the last few years at Thanksgiving, those of us at Face the Nation have held a book panel on history uh, or on the presidency. This year, our topic was crisis leadership, leadership in times of crisis. We interviewed Ron Chernow, the author of a recent biography on Grant, Robert Dalek about his new book on FDR, Nancy Kane, who wrote a book called Forged in Crisis, which is about five different leaders and the trials and tribulations they faced. And finally, Mark Updegrove, who wrote The Last Republicans about the Bush family, the 41st and 43rd presidents specifically. I'm not going to do a book report. I don't want to rob you of the chance to read these books. But what I am going to do is take some of my favorite takeaways, at least in one episode of, of Whistle Stop. We may do another episode here because there are a lot of them and I don't want to take up your entire evening. But these are um, some of my takeaways, some threads that run through all the books. And they reflect. They obviously uh, have something to do with these ideas that we've talked about here uh, on the podcast. First, I want to st- start with Nancy Kane's book. She's a business historian at, um, at the business school at Harvard. And she uses David Foster Wallace's definition of leadership uh, at the beginning of her book. And Wallace, David Foster Wallace, the fiction writer, defines leaders as individuals, quote, who can help us overcome the limitations of our own individual laziness and selfishness and weakness and fear and get us to do better, harder things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. It's a pretty good definition of leadership. It's that feel in the in the belly that you get when you hear a strong piece of oratory or when you're in a meeting where a, a leader seizes the moment, directs everybody towards a common goal. One corollary to this, leadership of this kind that makes this emotional pull on you and rises you, raises you to something greater than you might otherwise have been able to achieve on your own, it's impossible to do through a conference call. Anyway, uh, and aside quickly about Wallace, who gives us this great definition of leadership, it comes from his essay about John McCain's 2000 campaign. He wrote on McCain's Straight Talk Express, which you may remember I also wrote on. There's a whistle stop about that campaign. Wallace got lots wrong about that time there. I was there. He's a fiction writer. He employed some of the great tasks, some of the great tools uh, and um, qualities of a fiction writer in recreating the campaign for his um, for his piece that won the National Book Award. But despite the fact that there were all kinds of special new items that weren't necessarily things that had happened in the corporal world, uh, and that some of the things that then in fact had happened were massaged in such a way as to meet the needs of a fictive narrative rather than the events as they had proceeded before our eyes or before the eyes of the people who were actually engaged in them on the actual campaign, those obstacles, which are normally uh, total obstacles to a piece of uh, nonfiction writing, uh, nevertheless didn't rob the piece and the book that it later became of larger truths. And this uh, and this definition of leadership is one of them. And there are a couple of other big truths that uh, Wallace touches on in the book. And so it's one of those instances in which you can have someone get the facts wrong, but the truth right. Uh, so if you're ever inspired to go read that, don't believe a lot of uh, the 
things that are said in it, but there are nevertheless some truths about politics and leadership uh, that are uh, that are well put. Keen goes on to tell these stories of these five leaders. They're all compelling. I'll start with Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson, if you're ever feeling blue on a day and like you can't, you know, uh, quite, you aren't quite up to the task, whatever your task may be, you must read her biography because, I mean, she, you, it will discourage you from whining if you ever think your life is too difficult. Her career was weighed down essentially by illness time and time again. At the end of her days, she was playing Beat the Clock with Cancer uh, to finish writing Silent Spring, the book about pesticides that kicked off the modern environmental movement. And she appeared on CBS towards the end of her life and listened to how uh, sort of calm and placid she is, despite the fact that she's racked with cancer. The balance of nature is built of a series of interrelationships between living things and between living things and their environment. Carson died in 1964, so her leadership is slightly different than the kind that we're going to talk about. Although as she fought cancer at the end of her life trying to finish this book, it reminds me of the beginning of Chernow's book on Grant, because of course Grant was dying uh, and in excruciating pain as he finished his autobiography. Carson died in 64, so her leadership is slightly different than the leadership we're going to talk about with some of these others. She wrote the book that sparked a movement. She wasn't the captain at the prow of the ship like Ernest Shackleton or a president or like Frederick Douglass, who was an orator and a writer who pressed a movement in his lifetime. Her leadership was not a sustained act, but it was, in in a sense, more profound in the sense that her writing had the power to change a nation. Uh, The question then is, in today's world, with such polarization, could you have a piece of writing like this or a story told through some other format uh, that would have this powerful force that could penetrate popular consciousness in the way that she did? One of the subtle elements of her story that Kane focuses on here is one that I find really intriguing. She notes that Carson, unlike other men that she profiles, had to perform all of the duties women were expected to perform in that age. Carson had to care for her family, which faced a variety of tragedies, uh, and and it also meant she had to become the de facto mother of the son of her niece who died. Um, she had to basically live two lives: one of the one of career advancement, and the other of personal responsibility in the in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s. Men, of course, only had to deal with the former, the career advancement part. They had a wife who could shoulder the load on the latter. What that meant in practical terms is that Carson's work was often often interrupted. And there was an upside to this, Kane argues. And I'll quote from her book. In 1937, when Carson assumed an editorial position for the agency that, that became the Fish and Wildlife Service, she quickly realized that her bureaucratic commitments at work and her caretaking responsibilities at home would prevent her from doing nearly as much freelance writing as she had hoped. In the wake of this disappointment, she came to see the importance of her work in the, quote, gathering years in preparing herself for what she was meant to do in the future when the larger opportunity arrived. The concept that at times the most powerful thing one can do is to invest in oneself without great signs of outward progress. Everybody is so, you know, wanting to get success tomorrow to check all the boxes, uh, but there is a significant benefit that comes from these incubation periods. That's the argument that Kane makes about what happened to Carson. And the reason that's uh, interesting and important is that you can imagine somebody without these periods of rest barreling ahead and missing the the texture and focus and diligence that um, and patience that was forced on Carson. Um, 
And this also is an argument for all of the frustrations and failures that people will face in life and that other leaders, of course, faced. And they think, well, well, I'm not getting anywhere. But it may be, in fact, that they are simply uh, in their gathering period. So that's one interesting revelation about the slow burn that is required to succeed. The next, of course, is that failures are necessary while you're in your gathering period. Uh, On Face the Nation, Kane talked about, quote, the mileage of failure that accrues, which is just, you know, another great way of talking about the experience that is gained from failure. You put miles under your, you know, under your belt. Can you put miles under your belt? That'd be a really weird car. Anyway, but that all great leaders... Uh, were honed and sharpened and made better by the times when their lives looked like they were going right into the drain, down the drain. And at this point, Ulysses S. Grant comes in. Ron Chernow points out that Grant failed at one business after another. And by the time that hostilities in the Civil War broke out, he was almost 40. He'd been reduced to working as a clerk in his father's leather goods store in Galena, Illinois, where he was a clerk to his two younger brothers. And as the and then the war breaks out, and then he's a colonel, and then he's a brigadier general, then he's a major general, and then four years later, he has a million soldiers giving him the big salute. And Cherno's argument is that that pre-war experience of failure, uh, having to return and work for his damn father and under his younger brothers taught him how to weather adversity. And he'd been given a kind of toughness and perseverance that would be extremely important in a war that, of course, was very long and bloody and protracted. I think it's also, there's another interesting quality to Grant that I love that runs throughout the book, which is he was better in battle than in the barracks. And he may just have been a guy who was suited for war just in his bones, and that he was never kind of, uh, or suited for struggle, suited for high energy, high impact events, um, and that the other stuff bored him and he wasn't very good at it. Okay, FDR now comes on stage, of course, because he obviously suffered a tremendous setback in his life when he was stricken with polio. So stricken, no longer rocking, but it's also that sense of struggle through through the and and what you have to do to kind of get yourself back on track. In January of 1922, FDR started a regimen of crawling around on the floor of his bedroom and up a flight of stairs in the dining room to his bedroom while dragging his dead legs behind him as a way to try to build himself up. And ultimately, Roosevelt would say of this of this effect that it had on his life, he who said without crisis I might have stayed a weak character forever. Perhaps the ultimate affirmation of this idea that adversity and suffering make the man. A little interlude also here from the Bush book. Not an interlude. It's perfectly in keeping with the outline I wrote about this before I started talking. Don't call it an interlude. George Herbert Walker Bush reflected back on his life to Mark Updegrove. And it's interesting because, of course, he reflected George Herbert Walker Bush in a way that George W. Bush does not reflect. Bush says he never looked back doesn't like to be put on the couch, which is his term for psychoanalysis. His father was kind of always putting himself on the couch and writing notes to his sons and and sort of assessing life as it went by. And, he, and in these notes he wrote to his sons, it was these were his views of the world that was going by and the lessons he drew from them. Anyway, it was in this reflective posture that George Herbert Walker Bush returned to his time after being shot down in the Pacific, having to parachute from his plane. They lost two members of the plane Here's his reflection on that. As you get older and try to retrace the steps that make you the person you are, the signposts to look for are those special times of insight. And Bush was reflecting on this. His special time of insight wasn't just getting shot down and the trial and tribulation of that. But his conclusion of the conclusion he reached during this period that, quote, there's got to be some kind of destiny and I was being spared for something 
on Earth. So failure, crisis, near death gave shape to George Herbert Walker Bush's life. He also reflected uh, about this similar notion when he was reflected when he was thinking about the death of his daughter. Dear God, Bush thought, this is George Herbert Walker Bush, dear God, he thought, why does this child have to die? She was the epitome of innocence to us, and there was no explanation. At the same time, he believed, these things contribute to your life, your character, and what you stand for. Now, this is an aside, because this is in in keeping with those letters that George Herbert Walker Bush wrote to his kids about what was happening in his life. Here, there is a a, um, powerful, well, important letter with contemporary echoes, I'll say, that he wrote to his sons. It was during the Watergate period. He's chairman, Bush is chairman of the RNC during Watergate. And this is kind of amazing because he's chairman during Watergate, bad time to be chairman, and also chairman when Spiro Agnew has to step down as vice president. So tough job. Anyway, the country's losing faith in the president, and so was Bush. And he wrote to his sons about the line between political allegiance and patriotism. Why does this have contemporary echoes? Well, we're talking about tribalism now in politics and the extent to which people toss away the values, sometimes the values on which they base their entire political career, in order to support the person who's in their party. Uh, Here is the quote in the letter that George Herbert Walker Bush wrote to his son. Dad helped inculcate into us a sense of public service. And I'd like you boys, he was talking about dad, his father, Prescott Bush, who's a senator from Connecticut. And I'd like you boys to save some time in your lives for cranking something back in. It occurred to me your own idealism might be diminished if you felt your dad, and and there Herbert Walker Bush is talking about himself, condone the excesses of men you knew to have been his friends or associates. Bush, the father, suggested in those situations his sons, quote, should listen to your conscience. Don't be afraid not to join the mob. If you feel inside, it's wrong. In judging your president, give him credit for enormous achievements. But understand, too, that the power accompanied by arrogance is very dangerous. It's particularly dangerous when men with no real experience have it, for they can abuse our great institutions. Avoid self-righteously turning on a friend, but have your friendships mean enough that you would be willing to share with your friend your judgment. Don't assign away your judgment to achieve power. There you go. See? Contemporary echoes. Now, back to FDR. We were talking about his uh, bout with polio. We're still in that portion of our conversation where we're talking about the the power failure uh, can have in these gathering periods. So Dalek adds to what Jonathan Alter, uh, another biographer of FDR, former Newsweek, longtime Newsweek columnist, And Alter's theory, which is that to blunt the discomfort of having those dead legs, Roosevelt, quote, joked and reminisced so that friends were amused and distracted from the invalid they were seeing. Dalek says FDR honed his theatricality, the way he tuned his voice and planned his entrances and exits for maximum effect because he could no longer dominate a room with his physical size and presence. So the... It's not just the overcoming adversity. Here, in this case, FDR uses the adversity or his response to the adversity as a successful political tool in a job that requires that kind of acting. Acting, you say? Well, indeed. FDR would tell Orson Welles, the iconic director in Hollywood, Orson, you and I are the two greatest actors in America. Orson Welles was also an actor, not just a director. And he was also in wine commercials later. Anyway. Uh, Reagan once said, um, when talking about acting, he said something to the effect of, how could you not be an actor? 
uh, and be a president. This, of course, was an important skill for FDR because the country was facing depression. So both they needed a president who could, even though times were grim, act like he was jolly and kind of distract them from the thing that was going on, but also a president who understood the power of symbolism, honed by his own private behavior in which he understood the power of symbolism to get people to not look at the fact that he was uh, not walking under his own steam or in a wheelchair or or otherwise not embodying all the vigorous stereotypes that we expect to um, see with a leader. So this power of symbolism and the power of showing a brave face when things are going down is an amazingly durable quality that we see across presidencies. And, and now we'll go to Eisenhower, who's not in the four books we talk about, but I'm going to throw him in here anyway, because this lesson really comes from him. Fred Greenstein, who writes uh, in his book about um, uh, Eisenhower's hidden hand presidency, he writes that this was a lesson. This lesson of optimism was one that Eisenhower learned in the military. Uh, here I'm quoting Eisenhower. Optimism and pessimism are infectious, and they spread more rapidly from the head down than in any direction. Now back to Greenstein. Uh, from from then on, once Eisenhower realized that in the military, he, quote, firmly determined that my mannerisms and speech in public would always reflect the cheerful certainty of victory. So you get the point, right? You, no matter how things are going, you got to look like you're winning and you're on top, which is an act of deception, which we'll get back to in a minute. So embedded in the presidency, embedded in leadership is this notion of, um, of um, cheerful certainty of victory, which is a kind of um, dissembling. Anyway, one of uh, Kane's characters is Ernest Shackleton, the leader of the doomed trip to Antarctica, and one of the greatest tales of survival against horrible odds. And Kane focuses on that moment when the Endurance, which is the ship, is being crushed by the ice. It's October of 1915. Shackleton, 27 men per crew, they're on the iceberg off the coast of Antarctica. It's cold. Things are going bad. The ship's getting crushed by the ice. It's very intense. Early in the morning, Shackleton and his second in command, they, they whip up some powdered milk, hot powdered milk for breakfast. It's delicious. And the men see Shackleton. He gives them all the powdered milk and basically noting that the ship is doomed, says basically to his men, ship and stores have gone. So now we'll go home. He had no idea how to get them home. As he wrote in his diary, he hoped he would meet the moment, but he had no idea. But he was confident to the men that he, you know, now we're on our way home. Again, showing that complete sense of uh, certainty in the face of adversity. Similar story from Lincoln. His 11-year-old son had died. The war is going poorly. And he tells a funny joke and gets upbraided by a senator. And Lincoln responds to the senator's rebuke this way. Senator, do you think that the situation weighs more heavily upon you than it does upon me? If the cause goes against us, not only will the country be lost, but I shall be disgraced to all time. But what would happen if I appeared upon the streets of Washington today with such a countenance as yours? The news would spread throughout the country that the president's very demeanor is an admission that defeat is inevitable. There's an amazing consistency in these stories of basically putting forward the strongest public face. But what intrigues me here then, though, is the line between keeping a brave face and the requirements of transparency, which is something we want in our public leaders. We want our presidents to be honest. And that honesty, we we call him Honest Abe for a reason, even though Lincoln was very good at lying. And here's a story from Chernow's Grant. Grant is president. 
And he was such a uh, stickler for honesty that one day when a visitor came to his office, you could walk right into the White House at that point. Grant is in his office and he hears one of his ushers telling someone that the president's not in the office. And when that person leaves, Grant says to the usher, you should have said that I was otherwise engaged. In other words, not lie. He said, I don't lie for myself and I don't like people lying for me. But having said that about Grant, and we we want presidents to tell us the truth, but FDR, it turns out, was successful in part because he was a very good dissembler. He was not a strict truth teller. Obviously, this was true of World War II, where he knew the country. Knew, he was, knew we were headed to war. He knew he was planning for war. But he kept talking about the fact that America would not enter a war. Arguably, he won re-election uh, in 1940 on the promise that he would not take America into war, making carefully worded declarations that sounded like America was never going to war. The country was against it. Huge polls against it. Isolationist America. Nevertheless, he knew what he was saying was an attempt to fool the country, to get reelected, and when he was reelected, he was undoubtedly going to have to go to war. And this was something he did even when he was a candidate in 1932 and 36. He carefully hid his intentions to help himself by giving himself maximum flexibility. And he was ridiculed by Walter Lippmann at the time. Uh, Walter Lippmann being, as you know from the many times we've quoted him, the, the kind of preeminent um, essayist and, uh, and columnist at the time. Hoover, who was, who was running against old FDR, dismissed him as <laughs> such a wishy-washy flip-flopper that he was a chameleon on plaid. The New York Times journalist Elmer Davis observed that Franklin Roosevelt was the kind of man who thinks that the shortest distance between two points is not a straight line, but a corkscrew. Lippmann, oh, I, I forgot to give my Lippmann quote to you. Lippmann uh, complained that Roosevelt's equivocating was constant and decried his efforts, quote, to be such different things to such different men. This, of course, carried over to his time in office. I think I may have told this story before, but if I hadn't, haven't, Senator Huey Long famously expressed his irritation about Roosevelt when he said he'd go into the president and give him his pitch on something. And the president would say, fine, fine, fine. But then when the president, when Long's opponent would go in to the president and give the opposite side of the argument, FDR would say, fine, fine, fine. To which Long said, wait a minute, maybe he says fine to everyone. FDR told Henry Morgenthau, his aide, never let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, which prompted Morgenthau to ask, which hand am I, Mr. President? Rexford G. Tugwell, a Columbia University professor who was a part of FDR's brain trust, described, by the way, an aside on the brain trust, FDR was surrounded by eggheads and people who were known for their expertise and relied on them and, and sought power from them and used that as a way to give ballast to his policies, different than the day we're in now. Tugwell described uh, FDR this way. He said he described Roosevelt's, quote, almost impenetrable concealment of intention, leading him to conclude, this is Tugwell concluding now, that, quote, there was another Roosevelt behind the one we saw and talked with. I was baffled, unable to make out what he was like, that other man. This success FDR had with shading and sometimes saying things that were not true was what led me to ask President Obama this question when we interviewed him in 2016 before the campaign was over, which is to say before Election Day, when I asked him this question about a presidential attribute. Is honesty overrated as a presidential quality? It's interesting. I actually think that honesty is not overrated. I think it is absolutely necessary. Uh, because the trust you have with the American people is um, currency that can get depleted and is hard to build back up. 
what I also believe, though, is that um, the issues we deal with are so complicated, and trying to move all the pieces together to, to, to move this huge ocean liner that is the U.S. government uh, means that sometimes holding your tongue, sometimes letting things play themselves out, uh, knowing uh, not just when to act, but also to when to hold back and, and see how things are playing out so that you can pick and choose the time to do what needs to be done because uh, the moment may not be ripe yet. Uh, you know, those, those things, I think, are a matter of feel. You know, uh, Lincoln and FDR were masters at it. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not in, in their league, but hopefully after seven and a half years, I've gotten a little better at it. There's a distinction, of course. We should hasten to add. There's a distinction between lying to achieve an end, which is necessary, perhaps, and lying in the service of allowing pieces to fall in place and what our current president does, which is to say things that are not true or completely made up in order to elevate himself or strip away the legitimacy of another. Those are lies in the service of personal needs rather than policy goals. That may be splitting hairs, but a president who says something that isn't true for the purposes of advancing his goals is certainly different than one who does it for personal protection. I didn't know this, but I was reading Dalek's book. He mentions that there is one time that FDR refers to the effects of his polio. It's his last address to Congress. He's come back from Yalta. It's 1955. I hope that you will pardon me for an unusual posture of sitting down during the presentation of what I want to say. But I know that you will realize that it makes it a lot easier for me in not having to carry about 10 pounds of steel around on the bottom of my legs. And also because of the fact that I have just completed a 14,000-mile trip. So we've we built this case on uh, offering an optimistic face to the president that being president requires some amount of dissembling or at least holding your cards close to the vest, which which fights against the other presidential instinct, which is to show that you know everything and you can act. So you're constantly having to engage your willpower. And psychologists say that willpower is a muscle that weakens as it is deployed during the day. So couples having trouble are counseled to meet earlier in the day before the willpower required uh, at work wears them down. So if willpower is a muscle in that way and can get beaten down during the day, it's a wonder that presidents can get to lunch without having, hurling lamps out on the Rose Garden lawn. I mean, the, the job is a constant assault on willpower, holding your tongue when you know your critics are wrong, walking to pass the... The TV that's blasting breaking news with a story that's had the facts exactly backwards all day, and yet being able to continue without comment or throwing something at the TV. There are also, of course, strategic reasons for restraint, which President Obama talked about, where an opportunity to get a quick win has to be put off for a later bigger victory. Smart and all of that, but it requires, again, deploying all of this willpower. And there's this other part of the presidency that is a... That is a a burden on willpower. A president has the power to determine who lives and who dies, sometimes by the, th the thousands. Yet at the heart of his job is an impotency, which led Hannah uh, Arendt to describe the president of the United States as sim simultaneously the strongest and weakest of all national leaders. LBJ, as we used to, as we've mentioned many times, used to say the presidency was like being a jackass in a hailstorm. He sometimes had just have to stand there and take it. 
You have to have a high tolerance for pain is one way that uh, Jay Carney, who was Obama's press secretary, put it. So again, that high tolerance for pain requires deploying the willpower. But if you're deploying the willpower all the time, how do you have any left for the restraint that's required in the job to fulfill all the roles of the presidency? To do that, presidents often um, frame themselves in historical terms. And that's what we see in these four books. You see them to get through the day. They rely on the histories of their predecessors. George W. Bush used to refer to the fact that the ultimate judgment of his administration would be written by historians when all of his contemporary critics were dead. It's a story that presidents tell themselves because it's the only way they can gauge that willpower, which is basically to say, none of this will matter, stay the course, uh, and that helps them blow by the multiple irritations by the second that would otherwise bedevil a normal human. And so I'll leave you with a passage from Dalek in which he talks about this connection between presidents across time and handling the criticisms and getting that sense of perspective uh, that's required in the office. This from Dalek's book. A letter Lincoln had written during the darkest days of the Civil War, when he had come under repeated attacks, also gave Roosevelt solace. Lincoln had refused to respond to his critics, reasoning that to do so would close him off from attending to all other business. FDR identified with Lincoln's recollections on his efforts to do the best I know how, the very best I can, and I mean to keep doing it to the end. If the end brings me out all right, what is said against me will not amount to anything. If the end brings me out all wrong, then angels swearing I was right would make no difference. Roosevelt believed that Lincoln, like himself, no matter how philosophic he was in public, was hurt by these attacks. But his predecessor had, quote, kept his peace. That was and is the great lesson, Roosevelt told his aide. You won't always be right, but you mustn't suffer from being wrong. That's what kills people like us. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. I also encourage you to listen to If Then, because it will remind you of the days when you were programming with basic and used if-then statements, but also because it's a podcast about technology, society, and power. Each week, Slate's April Glazer and Willa Remus take you on a lively tour of the tech news that actually matters, with newsmaking interviews of key tech industry figures, fascinating academics, and top tech journalists. They explore not only how the technology that's shaping our world works, but the ideas, ideologies, incentives, and biases that underline it. And guess what? They don't always agree, which, as we know from any good podcast, is a recipe for success. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Our whistle-stop crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, one of the editors of Made by History, a new Washington Post history section. Also, special thanks for this collection of book research uh, goes to Kara Cordy, Jake Miller, Bo Erickson, Ed Forgetson, Mary Hager, Kim Schaefer, and Elizabeth Hinson. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. You can explore the entire roster of podcasts at www.panoply.fm. You can explore the entire roster of podcasts at www.panoplyfm. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Face the Nation.